All right, well, welcome and good morning. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead, and it's my, uh, my privilege and, uh, and my joy to be able to, to come with you this morning, the first Sunday of this new year, um, and open up the scripture together and see what it is that God has for us today. Uh, before we get going with the sermon, I did want to um, let you know, I kind of talked um, but give you update, we are looking at our community groups um, kicking back off here in a couple of weeks in January, um, January 24th, and running through May, our next session of community groups, and as part of that, um, we talked about this last week, we're going to have an opportunity, if you would like to, um, change the community group that you're in, if you want that opportunity to meet some new people, um, get to know some more people at Trailhead, that is a, a possibility. Right now, what we need um, starting today is if you're going to be in the same community group, we need you to, to sign up and let us know that you're remaining in the same group you're in. So there is a form, an online form, um, and you can get to it through the Church Center app, or you can download the online bulletin, again, through the Church Center app or through the website, trailheadonline.org, and there's a link there for an online form. Um, and if you're in a community group, at all, whatever your plans are for this next semester, we'd ask you to go on and get that form and let us know either you plan to stay in the group you're in or you plan to transition into a different group um, for this time. And so if you could do that this week, that would be really helpful. If you're not in a group and you would like to sign up, that will be coming next week. Um, so starting January 10th, um, there will be a, a way available for people who are not in a group to sign up. But to, to get there... We need to know who is staying in their current group. So please do that. Please log on um, either to the Church Center app or to the website and let us know if you're going to be in the same group moving forward. If you have any questions about any of this, um, last week I said email Dan Free. This week I've been corrected. Please email Julie Free if you have any questions. Jay Free at trailheadonline.org. I'm sure they probably communicate with each other. So if you email one, they might tell the other. But let's just try to... I'll try to say the right address, jfree at trailheadonline.org. All right. Um, all right, let's get into this uh, for today. So um, I have noticed a, a theme, a very common theme in a lot of stories, a lot of very popular stories um, that comes through regularly. Um, I'm thinking about like, and I don't, I'm always nervous to use these kind of examples, because I think when I use some of these examples, it, it earmarks me as a very specific type of, um, because I'm thinking about like The Hobbit and Harry Potter and Star Wars, and, and you're like, oh yeah, I know who you are. I know exactly who uses all those kinds of examples. But those are very popular movies, so I'm not the only person who watches all those things. But have you noticed in those stories, in The Hobbit, Harry Potter, lots of others that I'm sure you'll think of when I tell you what this theme is, there's this very common theme of the normal, regular, everyday person who suddenly discovers that they're a part of something going on, some story that is much bigger than themselves. And so it's, it's Bilbo Baggins, it's Luke Skywalker, it's, it's Harry Potter, these people who are just living what they think is a normal, regular, everyday life, and suddenly they find out that there's this huge epic story that's going on around them and they never even knew it and not only is it going on around them and they never knew it but they are an integral part of that story they get pulled into something that they didn't even know was there and then in all those stories they end up becoming like the key person to the whole story 
Do you ever wonder why? Why do you think that theme is so popular? Why does it come up so much? I think there's something really compelling about that idea. In fact, here's even more um, for you to judge me about. When I was a kid, I dreamed, I wished that that was me, that that was going to happen. Like, all the time, I was just ready that at some point, and it was either going to be like a, a, a wizard or an alien, or probably most of the time my imagination it was going to be some government official who was coming to draft me, you know, 12-year-old me, you're the one we need to save the world. And I was ready for it. I mean, I had the plan. I wasn't like physically ready. But in my mind, I was mentally ready for that call to come in. And I was, you know, whatever. Oh, I have special powers. I knew it. I was ready. You know, you're going to train me to be an assassin. I'm on it. All right, let's go. Because like, I just, because the idea that there was something beyond, because I felt like, okay, I was pretty ordinary. My life felt very ordinary. And I saw this stuff. I watched these stories. I read these stories. And I was like, I want to be a part of a story like that. I want to be a part of something bigger, something more exciting. I want to be a part of something that's really, really epic. And if somebody would just come in and tell me, hey, we've been watching you, and you are the one we need, I would have been like, I'm on it. I'm ready to jump in. Here's why I think a part of why that connects, and maybe, maybe I'm way off on my own on this, but I don't, I don't think I am. And you probably weren't ever dreaming of being drafted in as a spy for, to work for the U.S. government or anything like that. I get it. I'm, I'm weird on that count. But... There's a part of all of us that wishes or longs or desires to be part of something that's bigger than us. And the idea that there might be something going on around us, something bigger that we can join into, is incredibly compelling. And so we talked about this last week, and if you weren't here last week or if you didn't, I'd encourage you to go last week's message because it kind of sets the stage for a lot of this. There's something in us that can get restless, that can get discontent with our lives the way they are. And we're often looking for and searching for something more. And as we grow older, a lot of times what looked in, in childhood like that kind of a fantasy of some kind of superheroes or, or ninjas or whatever kind of a fantasy transforms, but there's still that same kind of longing for something more. We just replace it with, if I could just get that promotion, or if I could just be a part of that relationship, or if I could just get that financial, whatever it is, there's something in us that calls out for more. And then we looked at this yesterday, and if you can put that slide up, or not yesterday, last week, time's thrown off completely. During the past year, like, my sense of time is so distorted, and so I really think this was just yesterday. Um, I've just, no, I've Last week we looked at this chart, and what we said was, there's a story that is going on. There's a story that's going on all around us, and it's the most epic story because it's the epic story of the entire world. It's the history of the whole world, it's the story of the whole world, and it's the story God's telling. And we see it in Scripture, but we see it in the world all around us, and it's the story that God created the world perfectly, and it was in shalom, perfect peace, but then it was broken by our sin, and there was this time of waiting and waiting where God made a promise, but God's people kept trying, trying to fix everything that was broken on their own, and then finally God breaks in as Jesus, Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life and he dies on our behalf, to fix everything that's broken, and he rises again to show that he's victorious, 
And that is the story of the whole world. And that story is imprinted in our hearts in such a way that all of us feel the weight of this brokenness. And all of us feel this restlessness or this, I don't know, at the risk of sounding like a teenager, this angst inside of us telling us that there's more to just this life. There's more to life than just this life. And we desire more and we want more. And so we do all these different things to try to get more, but they never fully satisfy us. Because the more that we want is this restoration of what was broken from the very beginning. The thing we're seeking for when we're not content, the thing we're seeking for when we dream of something better exists and it existed at the beginning of time. And all of our desires and all of our discontentment and all of our efforts and all of our working and all of our striving is us trying to put things back to the way they once were. But what we said last week and what we see as we look at the world around us is all of that striving and all of that working and all of those efforts ultimately fail because we are incapable on our own of setting right what was broken. Only Jesus is capable of doing that, and he did it when he died, when he took our sin on himself, he achieved the victory over the brokenness, and he is both restored and is in the process of restoring everything that was broken. And so here's what we said last week, and this is where we want to pick up this week. If this is true, if this chart is real, then this is the greatest story that has ever been and could ever be, and it is the greatest thing that you could ever give your life to. If it's not true, then we're on our own. And we have to find some way to fix what's broken, because the brokenness part you know. Because you look around you, you see the world around you, you know the world's broken. Like, there's no doubt about that. The only question is, how do we fix it? If this isn't real, then the fixing it, it's, it's up to us. And we have to figure out some way, and maybe some of your efforts, I mean, you haven't figured it out yet, but just keep trying, because maybe you'll hit on it eventually, if this isn't true. If this is true, then the only way, the only way we're ever going to find true peace, true contentment, and true fulfillment is to join into this story. So the question we asked last week was this question. What does that mean, and what does that look like to join into this story. What does it look like to be a part of what God is doing in restoring the world? Not that we could ever actually restore the world ourselves, but to join in with Him in telling this story of creation, of sin, of the promise of redemption, and of ultimately restoration. And joining into the story is this part right here. And we've called it mission, or we call it mission, or the people who made this, this diagram up call it the mission because it's the mission that God has given us. Jesus told us how to join into the story. He didn't leave us wondering. He said specifically as he was leaving, after he had risen again from the dead, then he ascended back into heaven and he said as he was doing that, here's what you need to do. Here's how you can be a part of this story. 
And he used this word, and it's become sort of this very, I don't know, church kind of a word. And I want to talk about it today because it's really important for us in understanding what it means to be a part of this story. Jesus told his followers, and he tells us who are his followers, that to be a part of this story, what you need to do is you need to go and you need to make disciples. And to make disciples, he says, of everyone all over the world. You need to tell this story and you need to make disciples. So what's a disciple? That's what I want to talk about today. Um, Jesus invites us in. He invites us into the story. He says, look, I'm putting everything right. I'm fixing the brokenness of the world. And he says, and I'm fixing the brokenness in people. Individually, corporately, everything, I'm going to put it right. And there will be a day when everything's put right. But right now we're kind of in this in-between stage. And he says, I want you, Jesus says, I want you to be a part of it. And this is so much better than a wizard or a ninja assassin or a government official showing up and saying, I want you to be a part of it. This is Jesus, the creator of the entire universe, saying, there is this big story going on and I want you to be a part of the story. It's true. That, that kind of childhood fantasy, that hope, that dream, that there's this big thing going on around you, it's true. And we are invited to be a part of it. So what does that mean? What does it look like? What does it mean to make a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? That's what we're going to look at. So we're looking in John chapter 13. This is actually before Jesus left. In fact, John chapter 13 takes place um, the night before Jesus is crucified. Jesus is talking to his followers at that time. Um, as it says um, in this passage we're looking at in John 13, 31, there are 11 followers of Jesus. It says, it starts when he had gone out. The he it's referring to um, is a guy named Judas. There were 12. Jesus had 12 followers. One of them was a guy named Judas. This is after Judas left, because Judas is going to go, if you know the story, Judas is going to go and he's going to betray Jesus, he's going to sell him out um, to these Roman officials who are going to be able to come and arrest him, and that's how he's going to end up getting crucified. Um, but Judas had left, so when Judas had gone out, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This is basically Jesus' way of saying, look, right now, this is the moment. This is the big moment. Something really huge is about to happen. Okay? God is about to make something amazing and wonderful and miraculous happen. And it's going to show everybody how awesome and powerful he is. And in turn, it's going to show everybody how awesome and powerful Jesus is. And together, working together, it's just going to be this incredible display. Now, Again, if you know what is about to happen, Jesus is going to get arrested, tortured, basically murdered. It's brutal. It's bloody. It doesn't look very um, glorious. But that's only if you're looking at that individual small section of what's going on. When you see the big picture, you understand what Jesus is saying is something amazing, like the climax of the story is about to happen. This is the moment when you're going to understand who the hero really is and why he's so heroic. God is about to be glorified and the Son of Man is going to be glorified as well. Little children, verse 33, he says, Yet a little while I'm with you. 
You'll seek me. You're going to look for me. Just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus says, our time together, like, they've spent years together with these guys following Jesus, watching him, listening to his teaching, doing what he does, trying to be like him as much as they can. He says, that's about to end. I've been your teacher, I've been your leader, you've been my followers, you've been my students, but I'm about to go away. You're going to be left on your own, so what are you going to do? You're going to look for me, you won't be able to find me. So here's what you need to do. This is what you need to do when I'm not here, Jesus says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, we'll come back to that, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my, here's the word, disciples, if you have love one for another. Jesus says the defining characteristic of what it means to be one of his disciples is to love each other. Now that, I'll be honest, that seems a little bit anticlimactic in some ways, especially to us, 21st century Americans, to say that the key to everything and the way you join into this story and the big idea and the big, this is everything, is that we need to love each other. That seems like way, way too simplistic. And at the same time, it also seems a little bit absurd. Like simultaneously, too easy and too hard. First of all, it seems really simplistic because love, um, that's something that pretty much everybody says they value, right? Like everybody talks about we should just love each other, right? I seem to remember this song that all you need is love. Do, 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 um, um, like it's just, it's such a common thing. Like we're just coming out of Christmas, okay? And I don't know if you watched a lot of Christmas movies, um, but if you do, they all talk about love. But it's this very vague kind of generic, like if we just love each other, if everybody just loves each other, then the world will be a better place. But, but it's this sort of just kind of squishy, hazy, like what exactly does that kind of mean? But, but everybody already thinks love is like the key, right? But here's the question. If, if everybody knows that, and everybody says that, and everybody agrees with that, then why is our world so broken and so messed up? If it's such a simple idea, why isn't it working? But at the same time, we can say it's really simplistic. At the same time, it's also kind of absurd because nobody actually lives that way. We don't live and function out of love for other people most of the time. What we do normally, we do what's best for ourselves. We have a survival mentality. We structure our lives and our ideas and our decision-making out of what will impact and influence and, and benefit us the most. That sounds harsh to say, but it's true. Sometimes, sometimes we will do very loving things for our family, our biological family, sometimes for some of our closest friends, but our lives are not generally structured and working out of true, honest love for each other. What we call love most of the time, most of the time what we call love when we say we're being loving, it's actually us trying to curry favor and win affection for others. 
we do things that others might consider kind and loving because we think that if we do those good things, then they'll return affection back to us. We like the idea of love if that love is aimed at us. But actual real love isn't an attempt to get others to respond to us in a positive way. Actual real love seeks the best for others even when it's not beneficial to us. And Jesus is saying his disciples will have that kind of love for each other. Not, not just for their biological families, not just for like their spouses, although that's hard in and of itself. He's saying, when people look at you as my disciples, the characteristic, the defining characteristic that tells them that you are a disciple is that you will have true, genuine love for each other. Not, not just an outward physical kindness or politeness. We'll talk about that. You will actually, truly love each other in the way, here's what he said it, verse 34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, if we think about what the word disciple means, so I've been using the word disciple if we understand what the word disciple means, this will start to actually make some sense. Because what a disciple is, is someone who follows the example of a teacher, who listens to their teaching, and then attempts to learn from their life by following what they did. A disciple is somebody who follows very closely the teaching and example of someone else. So if somebody's going to be a disciple of Jesus, they're going to learn from him, not just by what he said, but by what he did. The people Jesus is talking to have been his disciples for years. They've been following him around. They've been watching what he does. They've been hearing what he teaches, seeing how he interacts with others. They've started to, in some ways, imitate him. Pieces of what he's been doing have rubbed off on them. But Jesus says, here's the key to all of it that you have to understand. If you're really going to follow me, if you're really going to learn from my teaching and in some way attempt to replicate what I'm teaching in your own lives, you have to have this piece of it. You have to love one another. And he says this, and they all say, okay, love people and they think about Jesus and they think about his life and they think love the way Jesus loved. Oh, I know that, that he healed people, right? I saw that. He went out and he, there were people who, were, who couldn't walk and he made them walk again. There were people who were blind. He made them see. So he healed people. So we can do that. That's how we'll love people. Or he fed people who were hungry. He gave them food and we can do that. We can feed the hungry. So we can do that. Okay, we'll love people the way Jesus loved them. He was kind to people who were outsiders. So we can do that. We can be kind to people who are outsiders. Okay, so that's what it looks like to love people. But here's what they didn't see yet the next day what Jesus was about to do was the ultimate act of love when he allows himself to die 
to take all of their sin and the sin of the entire world on himself to sacrifice himself for them. The ultimate act of self-sacrificing love. And when Jesus says, you need to love others the way I've loved you, that's an impossibly high standard. To be a disciple and to make disciples means to love others the way Jesus loved us. It sounds simple, and yet the more you think about it, and the more you talk about it, the more incredibly complex it becomes. And so, here's what I want to do um, this morning. I want to run through three truths. If discipleship, if being a part of the story means making disciples, and being a disciple means to be marked by Jesus' love in us, flowing out from us. If that's true, if being a disciple is defined by love, then I want to look at some things that are true necessarily from that that will impact how we live and whether we are a part of that big story. So here it is, three things. If discipleship is defined by love, number one, then that means, by definition, you can't do discipleship alone. If you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to make disciples, you have to do it with other people. We tend to think very much of spirituality as a personal experience or a personal discipline. In order for me to grow as a follower of Jesus, in order to be one of his disciples, I need to do these things in my life. And my, person, my, my spiritual life is very personal. It's very private. It's me and Jesus. It's my relationship with him. And so I need to pray and I need to read my Bible. I'm not saying any of those are bad things. Those are really important things and you should do those things on your own. But that's not the mark of what it means to be a disciple. If the defining mark of being a follower of Jesus is loving, then you have to have other people to love. It would have actually been easier if Jesus had said, the mark of my disciples is how you love me. They'll know you're my disciples by your love for God. Because you could do that, just you. It's just you and God and Jesus. And here's the thing, because when you love God, when you love Jesus, they don't mess up, right? They're not hard. They're not difficult. They're not awkward. If you have an awkward conversation with Jesus, the awkward one's you, right? Like, if it was just, if discipleship was just your relationship with God, it would be so much simpler. You start mixing other people into it, it just gets so messy. It's just so, so difficult. Being a disciple of Jesus requires an intentional commitment to being in community with other people. Even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. We're just, we're just naturally bent towards selfishness. Like, like when push comes to shove, you naturally turn inward. What is best for you? When things are easy, when things are comfortable, it can be good to be around other people. Especially if you see the benefit they are giving to you. 
right? So, so like we talk about community groups, right? That's how we started this morning. It's talking about you should be in a community group. We want you to be in a community group. That's our discipleship process. The trailhead is being in a community group. That's real easy when it's easy, right? When you're in a group with a whole bunch of people who are like you, who think like you, who act like you, who have the same struggles you do, the same victories you do, like all that stuff, that's really great. It's a lot of fun, and you get to get together, and you hang out, and everybody talks about how similar they are, and how great everything is, or how difficult things are, but they're all difficult in the same way, and so everybody's, but that's not what it means to really, truly love. It's, it's so much easier to try to sell. You should join a community group by talking about how much it will benefit you. But true love, sacrificial love, the kind of love Jesus is talking about, what it means to be one of his disciples, isn't centered around how it benefits you. And what if I got up and... Um, and this was my, my, kind of my sales pitch for community groups. You should join a community group this year. If you're not in one, you should join one because it's going to be really difficult. We can't meet in person, so it's hard. We meet online through Zoom. It's awkward, right? We're trying to discuss sermons, but, but it's kind of choppy because it's online. And, so, and some people, and listen, just so you know, some people are going to say some really awkward things. You're going to feel weird about it. There's going to be somebody in your group who you kind of wish doesn't show up once every while, you know, and, it's, it, and if there's not, it's probably you. So what is everybody thinking of you? And, and it's on Zoom, so you can see your picture the whole time. So not only do you have to worry about what they're thinking about you, but you can see how you look, okay? So, um, so join a community group. And here, let me, let me sweeten it. Somebody might even say something that really offends you. You might even have people who disagree with you about really what you consider to be really important stuff. There might be somebody in your community group who voted for a different presidential candidate. There might be somebody in your community group who has a different opinion about wearing masks in public. It's going to be awesome. Jesus says to be his disciple means we love others the way he loved us. That is not natural. My desire is to love people who will benefit me in some way. Jesus gets no benefit from sacrificing himself for you. Jesus not, did not look down through the corridors of time and see you and your life you were going to do and decide you were worthy of his sacrifice. Jesus saw every way you were going to mess up, everything you were going to do that was going to screw up everything that's going on around you. He saw the mess you were going to make of your life. And he said, that's the one I want to die for. That's the one I'm going to love. And it wasn't because you had special powers and it wasn't because you were going to make his life easier. It was because he chose you to love others who are not like us. Even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, is to be a disciple and is to make disciples.
If we want to be a part of that bigger story, we have to do it together. And together isn't always pretty, but it is God's plan. It also means this, if, if discipleship is defined by love, then it means this, that inner motivation is more important than external behavior. I, I used to hear this saying a lot, I, I still hear it once in a while, people will say this, you might have heard this before, Jesus tells us that we have to love other people, he doesn't say we have to like them. It's kind of funny, um, I guess, but I don't really know what it means. Like, I think it's this, this, this attempt to separate out love, what Jesus tells us to do, because Jesus tells us to love people. I mean, that's like so black and white in this passage we've read. But because it's so hard, that maybe if I can shift the definition of what it means to love people, maybe I can make it a little easier. Maybe I can make it more palatable. I think it means this, that I can, I, I'll show people kindness I'll be polite to them, even though internally I don't really care for them. And maybe that will fulfill the commandment, the rule, because, you know, especially if you're like a rule follower and Jesus says the rule is you have to love other people. Okay, so how can I follow that rule even if I don't feel it? Even if I have those difficult people in my life, even if there's that, that person at work who is just so grating. Well, I can be polite and I can be nice, I'm loving that person, even though on the inside I still feel all of this bitterness, all of this anger, all of this annoyance. As long as I've just, on the outside, I'm kind and I'm polite, then I'm still fulfilling the law. Now, in our current culture, politeness would be a good first step. I think a lot of us would be happy with that at this point right, if everybody were just more kind and more polite. But if that's all Jesus is talking about here, why did he say love instead of saying be kind or, or be polite? By this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you are kind to one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you're nice by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you are polite. That's not what it says. He says, if you have love for one another. And let's be really, I mean, just, just to be clear. If you have love means he's talking about love as a thing, as a feeling, as a, an internal sense of affection. He could have said, if you do loving things, but he didn't. He said, people will know we're his disciples if we have love. The, isn't it? I mean, again, in our world, the love means so many different things, and it's been watered down in so many ways, but isn't it definitional that love means to feel a deep inward affection for someone or something? Isn't that what love means? And, okay, there are outward acts that flow from that. That kindness, the politeness, even the self-sacrifice, those flow from love, but they aren't the entirety of love. They aren't the definition of love. 
Jesus is saying something really important here. Jesus is saying that being his disciple, being his follower, joining into the story is not just about what you do. Sometimes we look at the word disciple and we look at the word discipline and they come from the same root. And so we can get in our heads that to be a disciple means to be disciplined, to do these things. Look, following Jesus, obeying Jesus are absolutely the result of being a disciple. In fact, Jesus talks about them, he calls them the fruit of being a disciple. But they aren't the be-all and end-all of being a disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus and the characteristic of a disciple of Jesus is actually something internal. There's even this really scary passage in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, where Jesus says that there's some people who have obeyed him outwardly. Ultimately, they're not going to be rescued. They're not going to be saved because it was all action with no true heart affection. What Jesus is saying is that to join into the story, to be his follower, to be his disciple, you will love. You have to feel something. That's not fair. Seriously, that's, that's really not fair because you can't make yourself feel something, can you? You can make yourself do something. And we all make ourselves do things we don't really feel all the time. You can, by an act of your own will, force yourself to do certain actions. And that guy at work, or that person in your family, or that other couple in your community group, that just, you just don't feel anything for them, but you can force yourself to do things for them. You can do that. But to say that the mark of a true disciple is how you inwardly feel? Jesus that's really not very fair. Because I can't do that on my own. And that is the point. Because the third thing that's true, if being a disciple is marked by love, is that the strength for obedience to that has to come from the gospel. It cannot come from yourself. You cannot, on your own, in your own strength, by your own willpower, make yourself have internal affection for other believers. The only way to love others the way Jesus asks us to love them is to deeply believe and be moved by the way that he loves us. If you believe that you deserve God's love 
because of your goodness, because of your achievement, because of your morality, because of your discipline. Then to love others in the same way means other people have to earn your affection. And that if they're good enough, if they work as hard as you do, if they're as moral as you do, if they agree with the same truths you agree with, then you can love them and you'll feel that affection for them because they measure up in the same way that you're measuring up. If that's why God loves you, then other people are going to have to act that way for you to love them. But, if you recognize that God's love for you is completely undeserved, because you yourself are such a sinner, so deeply in need of God's grace. And when you hear that Jesus took your sin on himself to die for you, if that undoes you, because there's no reason he should have done that, and you recognize that on your own there's no way that you ever could have earned his love, and yet he chose to love you anyway, if you believe that, then you can look at others and you can see them as sinners in need of the same grace. And every annoying thing they do, every hurtful thing they do, everything that stirs up anger and angst and bitterness in your heart towards them, If you recognize your own sin and your own need and Jesus' love and grace for you, then you can look at all of those negative things in other people and see it just the same as their deep need for the same Savior and the same salvation that you so desperately need yourself. We are incapable of loving others out of our own strength. It is only by being moved by God, by Jesus, by the Spirit working in us that we are able to love others in the way that Jesus loved us. But that is so beautiful, and here's why. Because when we do love each other, in spite of our differences, it can only be seen as supernatural. Again, look at what Jesus says in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying, when, when you do this, when you lean into my love in such a way that it overflows his love towards each other, when you have affection for people who are so different from you and the only thing you have in common is that you were all sinners who needed this same grace, when you love each other in the way that I've loved you, people will look at you and say, that is weird. That is strange. Where is that coming from? 
And a world that all says all we need is love and love is this amazing thing and if we just loved each other, the world would be perfect. But they can't get it to work and they can't figure it out because we don't love each other. Because naturally on our own, we can't love each other. But then they look at you. They look at us and they see us loving each other. Not because we figured it out. Not because we've done it on our own, but because God's love is working in us. They look at that and they say, what is going on? And we say, we're just following our leader. We're just doing what he does. Because what he does is he loves others in this amazing, sacrificial, undeserved, unearned way. And he loves everybody, regardless of what benefit they could bring to him or how they could enrich his life. He just loves them. And we're just doing that because he loves us so much. And they say, oh, you must be great people, the way you sacrifice for each other, the way you help each other out, the way you give so generously. And we say, no, we're not. We're messed up people. We're broken people. We're hurting people. But we've been so deeply loved that we can't just keep all this love inside. And we just love each other. And we can hardly explain it. And there's no natural explanation for it. It's just the love of our Savior who loved us, and it's spilling out. And Jesus says, this is how you become a part of this story. This is how you join in to this epic tale of me, Jesus, restoring this broken world. You do it by making disciples. And making disciples means you love each other in the same way that I've loved you. And when the world looks at you, they're going to know there's something different. And the difference isn't going to be the way you dress. And the difference isn't going to be the way you address political situations. And the difference isn't going to be that you can argue with people and convince them with facts and logic about why they should believe this or why they... The difference is going to be that you love in a way that is unexplainable. What if we, Trailhead Church, what if we were marked by that kind of love. Let's pray together. In a moment, we'll, we'll share communion together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, God, what can we say except that you love us in such an amazing, unearned, undeserved way we're in awe. You are so perfect, you're so holy, and we are so, so far from even barely scratching the surface of perfect. We give you nothing, we have no benefit, and yet you love us. Thank you. Thank you for your goodness, thank you for being who you are, and for in your mercy loving us in spite of who we are. 
May we again and again and again return to your love. Let the truth of your love, the truth of your gospel, shape our hearts into a deep, life-changing love for each other. Help us to love in the way that you love. In the name of your Son, we pray.